0: You are listening to the Katie Herzog Experience. I'm Katie Herzog, the only host of this podcast, and today we have a very special guest host sitting in with me, Andy Mills. Now, even if you don't know the name Andy Mills, you probably know his work. He was a longtime producer on the public radio show Radiolab, and he co-created the New York Times podcast, The Daily, Caliphate, and Rabbit Hole. More recently, he created and produced The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. And Andy is an audio genius. He is is really considered one of the best radio producers in the country, and he has the awards and accolades to prove it, including multiple Pulitzer nominations. But he also took a very public fall from grace in 2020. And for the first time ever, Andy is going to speak publicly about what actually happened behind the scenes at the New York Times and elsewhere during that summer. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be unbiased here. Andy's my friend. He slept on my couch. We've eaten meals together. And he's also someone who, as you will hear, takes responsibility for his fuck-ups and who survived a pretty brutal cancellation campaign and somehow came out of it okay. And I'm really glad to have him sitting in today for that other guy whose name we shall not mention. Andy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Katie. And yes, it's true, I have enjoyed the hospitality of you and your wife and her fantastic cooking. Uh, And I regularly enjoy the splendor of your friendship. And I appreciate you having me on today. I mean, I think what... I would love to do with you in our time here today is is kind of two things. One of them is speak as a reporter who was inside of two very important and very influential media institutions during these years of a really profound and interesting shift that's underway in journalism right now. And the other thing is more personal – and obviously more difficult. But I'd like to try and talk about what it was like to be involved in a public shaming that changed my life, but that I hope also will reflect some of the larger issues that are at play in our culture. Does that sound good?
0: This sounds fantastic. I'm so glad to finally have a pro in the room with me.
1: You and Jesse are pros.
0: (laughs) We are amateurs. <laughs> you don't have to lie. You're a journalist.
1: <laughs> no one but you could have done that Lolita's story. And I tell you, I have listened to that like three times. It's like, it's probably like one of my top recommendations I give people when they ask me for podcast recommendations. So.
0: I, I blacked that one out. Okay, so before we get to the messy heart of it, let's start with your background. Okay. You don't have the sort of typical upper-middle-class, white-collar background of most journalists working today, especially in public radio. You were not a backseat baby, and that does not mean a child who was conceived in the backseat of a car. That means someone who grew up listening to NPR. Uh, So how did you – tell me about your background. How did you end up in public radio? Where did you come from?
1: Well, uh, I was raised – Largely in a very small midwestern town, uh, the kind of place with you know cornfields, old red barns, uh, only a thousand people in our town. Although it's the county seat, uh, which is a big deal, it means we got the courthouse. Um, the joke was always that there were more hogs uh, than people living in our town, and it's probably uh, probably still true. Um, and you know, growing up, I definitely never dreamed of being a journalist. I didn't exactly know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to do something that was meaningful. Uh, I would love to see the world, you know, like a lot of people who grow up in small towns and watch a lot of movies and read a lot of books. You kind of wonder what it would be like to travel out in the world. Um, I think briefly when I was in high school, I thought about joining the military, especially because there was an especially charismatic Navy recruiter who came to our school and showed us pictures of aircraft carriers in the Indian Ocean and talked about how one night he saw these flying fish. And I remember thinking, wow, that'd be amazing to go to some place like that. But instead, I ended up going to Christian college to, uh, to become some sort of minister I had always been involved in the church. I think like a lot of small towns, the church was the central focus point of a lot of the social elements of our town. And for me especially, you know, I thought that church was not just a place that you went on Sundays, but it was also a place where you could kind of have deep conversations about good and evil and what makes a meaningful life. But in Christian college, I read a lot of theology, studied a lot of church history, and pretty soon the sort of Protestant fundamentalism that I had grown up with started to fray at the seams. You know, just certain things that we were told every Christian believed. I learned not every Christian believed, and especially not every Christian throughout time is believed. And the more I read the Bible, the more I was surprised that there weren't passages in there that I thought would be, and that it was more complicated.
0: There wasn't a God hates fags" passage?
1: Yeah. Where's that at? (laughs) What started there, I think, uh, you know, to make a very long story short, you know, eventually I just started to to lose certain foundational beliefs, uh, whether it was that everyone went to hell except for a small band of Christians who believed exactly what I did or other aspects. And I became less interested in a vocation where I would be telling other people what to believe and why, and I started to be more attracted – to storytelling and to journalism, and especially this idea at the base of a lot of journalism, which is that you get to go out and meet people who are different than you, who have different life experiences than you, different assumptions than you, and you get to be curious about them for a living. You get to tell their stories. You get to examine the way that their lives have been impacted by some law or the way that some war has impacted their beliefs about reality, and uh, eventually that led me to wanting to become a journalist.
0: OK, so you go to Christian school, you lose the faith, as I, uh, I think that is probably not the, the goal of most <laughs> Christian colleges, although a, a shockingly common outcome. Uh, and you go into journalism, and uh, tell me about your first jobs.
1: Well, right out of college, I spent a summer roofing houses, which I have done most summers of my life, including just this past summer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But after that, I landed a job, kind of a dream job as like a young 23-year-old aspiring journalist. It was a one-year contract as a research journalist in South Sudan. Uh, This was print journalism at the time. And for a year, I had this incredible experience of driving around South Sudan with an interpreter on a motorcycle, living in tents, and meeting people who were in the midst of, like, really intense experiences. At that time, a very long civil war had just ended, and Southern Sudan, as it was known at the time, was attempting to form its own country, which is now South Sudan. And the stories I was hearing were about sexual abuse, about murder and infanticide and the burning of people alive. I mean, it was very intense, but very meaningful work. It definitely solidified that I wanted to do this for a living.
0: That is quite a job. That was your first job, not even out of journalism (laughs) school, but out of Christian college.
1: Yeah, I had the same thought. I mean, there were definitely (laughs) times where I would be riding my motorcycle into a small village alongside you know a river in south sudan and all these kids would be coming up to me shouting kawaja 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 which is like that's their word for white man you know Mm -hmm. and i would learn that i was the first you know white-skinned person to ever come to their village and they'd be like petting the hair on my (laughs) arms and you know and i definitely would have this feeling of like how the hell did i get this job (laughs) Uh, um i did that for a year And then, of course, I traveled around Europe a little bit, as you're one to do at that age. And then I got back to the U.S. in the fall of 2008, and it turns out I had come back to a United States where there were very few jobs for aspiring young print journalists, especially those who only had a year of work on their resume in obscure villages in Sudan. So I got a job as a house painter. And... That surprisingly ended up changing the trajectory of my career because uh, there was this device, you may recall, called the iPod. Do you remember this? I do. And I had a friend of mine who knew I was going to be out painting houses all day, and he loaded up the iPod with a bunch of episodes of This American Life. And remember, like this is before – uh, People know the word podcast. This was like a guy who pirated a bunch of MP3s of This American Life from the internet and put them on my iPod. And day in and day out, as I would be painting these houses, I was just obsessed with this storytelling, with this kind of like human-centric journalism that seemed driven by curiosity and interested in news, but also in these small, delicate moments that were revealing about some greater humanity – And I wanted in. And so I got a microphone. uh, I had a friend who taught me how to use some sound editing software. And I started interviewing everybody that I could. I started interviewing my family members. I interviewed my neighbors. I interviewed my friends. And then I would go to my apartment, and I would edit these stories into little audio postcards. And eventually, after years of doing these little audio stories on my own and working at coffee shops and bars and factories, eventually one of my stories won me an award. And that meant that I got to borrow a suit and go to Chicago to this big award ceremony where all the kind of big names in this new rising industry called podcasting were all there. And I used my opportunity to receive this award while I was up there in front of everybody to say, thank you very much, but will someone please hire me? <laughs> you know, like I would love nothing more than to have the lowest level position mm-hmm. working in this industry if anyone has a job opening. And that led to me getting my first full-time, not just a contract, staff job with Radiolab. So
0: you moved to New York after that?
1: Yes, Getting this job didn't just mean that I got to do what I wanted to do for a living, but it also meant that suddenly I was living in New York and a part of the New York media universe that I don't think I ever really considered before. Like, I don't think that I realized that, like, every one of the major big news studios, like even Fox News, like, they're all in New York.
0: So did you experience some culture shock here, either, you know, from moving from a small town to a big city or working in the, you know, kind of rarefied intellectual progressive world of public radio? I mean, you'd been a house painter and you'd worked in factories. You went to Christian college. How did you fit into this environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question because on the one hand, it was awesome. And on the other hand, it was disorienting. Um, On the awesome end, I mean, these were my people, especially at Radiolab. I mean, I don't know if people out there listening like remember those early years and the kinds of stories and the ambition that we were going for in those big episodes, but the people who I was working with largely were as obsessive about stories as I was. They were hungry to tell stories that moved people, that challenged their beliefs. But yes, I also noticed rather quickly that I was a bit of an oddball in some ways that maybe I didn't expect. And and some of it became kind of fun. I mean, there would be people who, when they found out my background, would say, so, you know, did you used to believe in, like, creationism or something? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I did.
0: Like many Americans. Maybe most <laughs> Americans.
1: And they'd be like, but, but like, like what, do you, what do you believe now? And I'm like, well... I find the evolutionary theory very persuasive, <laughs> uh, very interesting. I'm I'm an enthusiastic uh, student of of this Darwin guy. Um but you know that came later. That came that came when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, "Hold on a second." And then they'd like bring a friend and be like, <laughs> Can you tell him <laughs> what you just told me about creationism? <laughs> so it was kind of a, I feel like it was like a little bit of a party trick, maybe.
0: I could see how other people would go through this experience and feel a lot of imposter syndrome, to use a favorite term on on Twitter. Did you uh, did you feel that way? Did you feel like out of place in a bad way?
1: I wouldn't say imposter syndrome, but I, I would say that it led to some moments that maybe felt normal. While I was in them, but then quickly would feel embarrassing afterwards. Uh, maybe a, a good example of this uh, from early on when I was there. You know, uh, one of the uh, one of the early debates that I got into with some of the younger staffers revolved around the phrase "people of color." I believe somebody had recommended that we started to use the phrase "people of color" more uniformly at Radiolab and someone eventually even proposed that we would come up with a list of our guests and classify them between white and people of color so that we could better understand how often we were talking to more white people than people of color right that was their argument
0: and this is this has become pretty standard in public radio in terms of cataloging like i know some shows and some stations they really track right. demographics which i think can lead to some Pretty inadvertently hilarious and also very embarrassing situations for reporters who have to, you know, during the course of interviewing, for instance, like someone in a militia at the end of the interview says, "Like, uh, what's your gender identity and what's your race?"
1: This was before that time began, or I guess maybe this was the beginning of that cultural movement happening, and I was a part of these conversations at WNYC, you know, the parent company of Radiolab, and I remember one day. Uh, pushing back on this idea, especially the use of people of color. Uh, my first argument was that, you know, I don't know if a lot of people across America use the phrase people of color. It, it it seems like something I hadn't really heard on a regular basis until I moved to New York, so that might be kind of alienating. And on top of that, like, it does feel funny to categorize people in this way. And I told them that—
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe
1: a little bit racist, <laughs> right? Well, I, I mean, the example that I use is I said, you know, how I was raised, and it, I'm not saying how I was raised was right, but i was saying how I was raised. Um, we were encouraged not to use language like that. It was a little bit different, you know. I think I had an uncle who called people colored people, right? He thought of it, it as colored people and white people, and you know, my family taught me that you don't say that. Like that, that, you, that the world is not divided up that way, and that, you know, colored people were people, we were all just people, and that it was inappropriate to use. And so I said, like, isn't there a little bit of some kind of similar happening here? I know that it's people of color instead of colored people, but it's...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Andy, it's totally different. It's people, it's, look, if you put the people first, it's not racist.
1: (laughs) Right. But I mean, at the time, it was just kind of awkward, and I didn't understand why people were getting quiet. And then afterwards at the bar, my buddies who I work with pulled me aside and were like, Andy, don't ever say stuff like that at work. (laughs) And I'd be like, why? What's going on? And they're just like, trust us. Like, just don't talk about that stuff, especially with the younger staffers. And I was like, okay, and I'd be a little embarrassed. But then, I don't know, I would go back to work, I would do my job well, we would win awards, you know, like, that, that seemed like a small fringe aspect of it all. And at times, you know, I don't think, I think because... I had been a Christian at a Christian college who then started to question the basic orthodoxy of my fellow Christians. I was comfortable at the time pushing back on my professors. And I was, you know, I I worked at the college newspaper at my Christian college and I was the editor of the op-ed section. And I liked to publish op-eds that questioned things that were considered orthodoxy. I think the, you know, I'm glad that, you know, there's no digital archive of my own uh, writings from the time. But, you know, I, I did a big piece, a big reported piece where I interviewed the professors of religion and psychology. And, and I asked the question, you know, should Christians committed to celibacy before marriage have masturbation as a part <laughs> of their kind of healthy sex lives? Like, can you or can you not masturbate? And What's the answer? I caused quite a bit of a stir. I mean, interestingly, the, the theologians were split at my school. But um, yeah, so I think that there was a level of kind of comfort, and I kind of thought, well, this is what we do, isn't it? We, we disagree, and we try and find a better idea. I mean, we definitely did it when it came to stories, and we all pushed each other to go deeper and find something more interesting or more true at the base of the stories we are working on. And I don't think I thought of this necessarily as that different at the time. If that makes sense,
0: yeah, okay, so despite this tendency to say things you're not supposed to say uh, ask questions you're not supposed to ask necessarily, although as a as a journalist this can really come in handy as a coworker uh, maybe not maybe not as much uh, but you you were really good at your jobs and it seemed like you were doing really well, but there were some problems at work problems that almost killed your career and in fact would later come back and haunt you so tell me what happened
1: okay so um in 2013, in the, in the winter of 2014, two things happened um, that, yes, years later would change my life uh, profoundly. One of them was a debate about hiring. Radiolab was growing at the time. Like I said, our numbers were growing every month. We were really excited. But we were also really ambitious, and we were working ourselves quite hard. And we were thrilled when the opportunity came up to hire a new producer. And our hiring process eventually led to two qualified candidates, a man and a woman. And I strongly believed that the man who was up for the job, who was someone who had temped for us for over a year and who had honestly taught me a lot, I thought he was just clearly the more qualified candidate. And there was some agreement about that on the team, but then a conversation emerged about diversity in this case, it was gender diversity. I believe at the time there were five or six men on the team and three or four women on the team. I can't remember the exact numbers. Too
0: many dicks. I don't.
1: I don't, I don't believe they said too many dicks. And you know, the uh, the woman candidate was also qualified. I just did not think she was nearly as qualified, and I don't think I didn't think that she would be as good of a hire. Yeah. Where things got tricky was when I pushed back on the very notion that we should consider their genders at all in the hiring. And I'm sure I did not uh, state this as eloquently as I'm trying to now, but I, you know, I said some version of, like, if we can't look her in the eye and say, you know, you were hired because you were the best person for the job. If we have to say, well, you were the best person who wasn't a man for the job, like that just feels disrespectful and I think it's against my principles. So that was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened is far more embarrassing and shameful, and that is uh, that in the winter of 2013 or 14, I can't remember if it was December or January, a group of Radiolab colleagues and I were out in Brooklyn at a bar, and we got properly drunk, and eventually a little argument broke out. And in the midst of this argument, one of my colleagues, uh, a female colleague called me a fucking hipster, and I, kind of acting like I was just joking around, took my drink and I dumped it on her head.
0: And uh, what was the drink and how much of it? Because when when I think of, like, when, I, when you say took my drink and dumped it on her head, what I'm picturing is a pint glass full of beer.
1: Well, <laughs> sadly, I've had to think a lot about what <laughs> sure. was in that glass because it has been litigated. I mean, the truth is I just don't exactly remember. Uh, to my memory, it was a half glass of water. I reached out to people who were there that night, and they said yes, they remember being a half glass of water. Uh, she remembers it as a half glass of beer. I don't think that it's worth our time to litigate that. It was a stupid fucking thing to do. Totally, totally. And as soon as I did it, I knew that, and everyone was super appalled and was like dude what the fuck did you just do and i was like oh my god i i i am just kidding no i I'm not, i that was stupid i'm sorry i'm yeah it was like it just immediately was yeah clear that it was crossing some line and it, it wasn't a joke and it, it was super rude and stupid i you know you know i got a towel and every all of us rush as you would to to clean up the mess and i just like please i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry I think she was very embarrassed by it. And even though she said, no, it's fine, whatever, we were, you know, we were were drunk, we were being stupid. It was like, no, clearly that was crossing a line and that was dumb. I apologized again to her later that night. And yet um, it was this, like, absolutely stupid, embarrassing thing that I did. Yeah. Fast forward a few weeks. And one day when I'm at work, I am called in to HR's office. And they sit me down and... They tell me that because of an incident that occurred, they have done an investigation into my behavior at work. They've spoken to my colleagues and to my managers, and they have come up with a list of behaviors that are unprofessional and that I will immediately desist with or else I'm gonna lose my job. And on the list, of course, at the top, is the dumping of the drink. There was also people who said that they had been offended about my comments about one of our colleagues being hired because of her gender and not just her skills. There was also smaller things. Um, my use of the word gals. I used to say guys and gals a lot. And some people felt Wh- that.
0: Why is gals bad?
1: I didn't know. I asked them. And, and I, I, re- I remember the HR manager saying, Andy, it's 2014. You work in an office in New York. There's no place here for a word like gals.
0: Wait, but so what are you supposed to say, guys? Like if you just say guys, then you're leaving out the gals. You you don't want to say girls. Girls, I can see how that would be patronizing. But gals.
1: Once again, I did (laughs) did not engage in this sort of conversation (laughs) with the HR person. I was incredibly embarrassed.
0: Yes, I'm uh, sure.
1: And I I was scared. And especially because, you know, another thing on this list was something that really shocked me which is that some of my colleagues had said that I was um, just too touchy. Both men and women felt that I was too huggy, too quick to put my arm around them, just too familiar in that way, and that some of them had felt like it wasn't professional. And one person in particular had pointed out that in a staff meeting where there weren't enough chairs in the room for everyone, she sat on the floor in front of me And that there in front of everybody, I rubbed her shoulders and that it made her feel really uncomfortable. And um, I immediately remembered doing that and absolutely was embarrassed because in my head, I thought that I was like this like church campy, lovable Midwestern guy who's like full of compliments and always giving hugs and I'll see you guys next week, right? And at least to some of my colleagues, that's not how I'm coming off at all. Um, I'm telling you, it was it was a devastating and embarrassing wake up call that I needed to change my behavior at work. How did you respond to this? Well, there's definitely a part of me that really wanted to fight back and and say like, guys, there's nothing wrong with using gals. That's just a regional word, and you're you're overreacting. And and it's like saying pop. Exa- exactly. And like, I, I, and especially about the shoulder rub, I was like, well she's my friend and she had been dating my roommate and we had a relationship, you know, that was very friendly outside of the office. You know, she, she knows I didn't mean anything by it. Um, but instead I chose to just see this as like a real wake up call. Like I said, to, to say, okay, people at work don't always see you the way you see yourself and better now than later. You have been informed about this because I want to have a nice long career in this world, better, you know, my first couple years in an office than later on having this kind of discovery. And so I just told them, like, I confess it's all true. I'm incredibly sorry. I will never do it again. And I will, you know, take any punishment that you guys deem necessary. And the, that punishment took the form of, uh, one, I, I was passed over for a promotion that I'd been uh, working towards, and two, I had to go to a professional workplace trainer off-site on my own time, unpaid. I was contrite, to say the least. I apologized to the members of my team. I apologized to my bosses. I tried very hard to make sure that I never behaved again in any way that could ever end up on a list like this.
0: I think this is a good time for a break. This is a podcast. You can reach out to us at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. Also check us out on Reddit. Our subreddit is God, I have to do this without Jesse. dot com. I can't guarantee that's accurate, but go ahead and try it. And if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is by becoming a premium subscriber, a primo, as we like to call them, or a preemie. You can do that at blockedandreported.org, where for just $5 a month you get early access to our episodes. They're also ad-free, and you get three extra episodes of this podcast every month. Jesse is going to be back to join us for all of the primo episodes, so if you miss him, and I don't know why you would, but someone, one person out there probably does, uh, check us out. That is blockedandreported.org. And I think that's it. I'm probably forgetting something, but Jesse isn't here to berate me. So let's move on. Andy,
1: you back? I'm back. I'm here. And I uh, just so you guys know, I am a subscriber to Blocked and Reported, and I have no regrets.
0: You get, we get the Andy Mills endorsement. <laughs> I will have all of our primos on the show at one yeah. time or another. Andy's just the first one. <laughs> Um, Okay, so Uh, let's get into it. So in 2016, so that's two years after your meeting with HR at Radiolab, you you leave WNYC and Radiolab and you join the New York Times. And while you're there, you create a new show, The Daily. Huge hit, number one podcast in America, millions of downloads. Your career is going amazing. You are the envy of the podcast world. But then two years later in 2018, so this is right at the height of the Me Too movement, you get a call from New York Magazine. Tell us about that.
1: Okay, so yeah. I mean, first, uh, it started off when actually I got a call from an old boss at WNYC who was calling to say, hey, there's a freelance reporter for New York Magazine who's asking questions about you, and I think he's trying to drum up some kind of Me Too story. I told him that, you know, there's nothing here but... He seemed very motivated, so just watch out. That was followed by more calls from former colleagues, from former interns, who said that this guy was asking about whether or not I ever had inappropriate sexual relationships with them. Uh, And then eventually, I got a call from the reporter himself and several emails, and he was investigating not only the claims that had been on that list, but far more absurd claims uh, that were completely unfounded. And uh, at this time, of course, I went to the New York Times. I I told them about this article that was going to come out. And I got to tell you, they were amazing. I think that it was uh, one thing that really helped that go smoothly was that I had pretty soon after I took the job at the New York Times, I bonded very quickly with my colleagues uh, making a daily show with a very small team deep into the night. Every night we'll do that. And uh, I was very open with them about having had this profound experience with his HR investigation and essentially this, like, get professional in the workplace or you're out of here kind of punishment that I got. And so whenever this journalist came looking for statements from me and from the Times, it wasn't like it was news to them. And they absolutely went to bat for me. You know, they stood up for me saying that I had been a great colleague, that I had shown, you know, remorse and embarrassment about the experiences that had happened when I was at WNYC uh, years ago. And, you know, the guy eventually publishes the article and really nothing happens. When he initially published this article in New York Magazine, there were a few claims that were in there that were just untrue. And I had you know, told him they were untrue. The Times had essentially asked if he had proof of these claims and he never provided the proof, but he insinuated these things were true in the article. So we did get him within 24, 48 hours of the article being published. I think we got him to make like six different corrections to this article. But even with all that, I mean, it, it just it absolutely made no splash.
0: Well, I mean, it that moment, you know, I was working at The Stranger at the time, and I had colleagues who the same thing was happening, people who'd been at the paper for a long time, who reporters were calling, you know, trying to get dirt on. Nothing came out about anybody. Uh, but there was just this, it was like, it, it tells you something about groupthink, that all of a sudden there's this absolute fever pitch. We got to get these guys, and we got to get them right now, even if there's really no there there.
1: Yeah. And I just want to highlight here just how wonderful my colleagues at the New York Times were during this entire experience. Just as like a small anecdote, after the article was published, several editors and reporters who I really admired, they went out of their way to write me emails or to come over to my desk and tell me essentially like if somebody investigated with a fine tooth comb all the stupid shit I did when I was in my 20s they would have found a lot worse than what they found on you, man. Like, don't sweat it. You're going to get through this. It's fine.
0: Did someone um, stand behind you and rub your (laughs) shoulders?
1: No. No, they did not. Oh, my gosh. And, I mean, they, they went even further than that. I mean, my... My bosses gave me the opportunity to apologize to the team at The Daily for bringing bad press and to essentially give them my side of the story where I confessed that, yes, I had done this stupid shit, and I'm really sorry about it, and it's in the past, and the team treated me uh, with graciousness, my bosses treated me with respect, and we kind of just got back to work. And in fact, a year later, when I received a promotion, in my performance review— my managers actually wrote in a whole section about how they felt that I had dealt with that situation with professionalism, candor, and grace, and it, it just meant a lot to me.
0: Do you have that handy?
1: Do I have what my performance review?
0: Yeah, you don't. Uh, you don't keep it printed out <laughs> on your desk. Uh,
1: I, I do have it. <laughs> um, I mean. <laughs> I guess I could I I could go get it. I printed I did print it out because uh, in the midst of what is to come, there were times when I wondered like, am I a shitty person? Like, am I remembering this thing differently? And uh, sometimes I pull it out and read it when when I need to. So,
0: <laughs> all right, give us a dramatic reading.
1: In the midst of production, you had to deal with a difficult situation in which a magazine was publishing unflattering accounts of your time as a producer at WNYC. You handled the situation with candor and grace, telling your managers and colleagues long before it became the subject of a story and working with us to understand what had happened and what you had learned from it. In the end, our confidence in you and our admiration for you grew from this situation.
0: I mean, considering what is to come, that is darkly, darkly ironic. Okay, let's jump to Caliphate. So a lot of our listeners probably remember this show and what happened afterwards. But for those who don't, just tell us about the show a bit.
1: Okay. So, after the dailies' success, uh, the next um, project I worked on was Caliphate. This was a like seven, eight part series podcast, super ambitious. Uh, not only the most ambitious podcast I've ever made, but I think one of the more ambitious podcasts that's ever attempted to be made. Hey, 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 uh, did you
0: not listen to our 17th series <laughs> on
1: Keffels? I, I actually didn't make it to the no <laughs> end. No offense to Jesse. No um, offense to Jesse. But, um, you know, this was me and star terrorism reporter for the New York Times, Rukmini Kalamaki, you know, on the ground, war reporting in Mosul during the fight to regain control from ISIS uh, just wild experiences with survivors of bombings, uh, former uh, sex slaves that had been held by Isis, you know, going out on the battlefields to pick up documents, uh, seeing all these dead bodies and and it was just that intense experience mixed with this very strange confessional interview that we had with a former Isis fighter who was at the time living back in Canada. And this podcast was, absolutely my baby. I had pitched it, produced it, obsessed over it 70, 80 hours a week for months and months. I wrote a lot of the music for it. I mean, I gave it everything that I had. And you know, it was just a very small team of us that was making the show, uh, one other producer and two editors. And uh, this was what we thought after the Daily going to be like the next big thing from our audio team.
0: And it was, right? So Caliphate's a huge success. Both commercially and critically, you won a bunch of awards, including a Peabody. But there was also some controversy,
1: right? There was. um, You know, in the immediate aftermath, you know, some people thought that because we – in describing the motivations for people joining ISIS, especially a lot of the middle class Western ISIS members who fled their – Suburban homes to go and join. Uh, we talked a lot about the role that religion played. And some people accused us of being Islamophobic. Other people thought that maybe we were too intrusive in being present for these very intimate moments that happened with these Yazidi sex slaves as they were reunited for the first time with their families. But uh, the other controversial thing was really uh, that we broke the fourth wall a lot in the series. And especially, I think, episode four or five is a whole episode dedicated to the fact that the former ISIS fighter that we interviewed, he clearly was lying about aspects of his story. And, you know, we had to kind of show our work and how hard it was to fact check any of the claims that he made. And we had to cast a lot of doubt saying that we don't know to the extent to which any of this guy's story is true. And so some people, when they got to that episode felt like they had maybe been a little duped. Yeah. Some people liked that we were showing how hard this kind of reporting is and bringing in this ambiguity. And then some people were like, well, if you don't know for a fact, if anything, this guy's saying is true. Why are you airing Mm it? Um, And I think I understand that criticism.
0: Okay. So another couple years go by, your career continues to go really well. You win more awards, produce more shows for The New York Times. But at the same time, things in media are getting increasingly weird, uh, especially by the time we get to 2020. Of course, there's COVID and the racial reckoning. The Great Awakening is becoming more and more apparent. It's a huge media story. The term cancel culture emerges. Alison Roman loses her column at the New York Times over some bullshit. T- Barry Weiss tweets that there's a civil war within the New York Times and then very publicly resigns. James Bennett gets fired after printing the Tom Cotton column. All of these things that we've been covering on this show for the past four years.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What was it like to be inside of that?
1: I mean, it was an exciting time to work at the New York Times from 2016 until 2021, as you could imagine, you know, from the moment I was sitting there in the newsroom and we started to realize that Donald Trump was likely to be the winner, you know, all the way through COVID and the summer of 2020 and into the next presidential election. I mean, it was just an incredibly exciting time to be at the world's most powerful newspaper. But it was also A strange time socially to have kind of a front row seat to these changes. You know, I was at some of those meetings where people were chastising James Bennett for publishing op-eds that they disagreed with. And of course, I was present in the big remote meeting that we had the day that James Bennett was kind of chastised by many members of the staff and forced to resign. I mean, it was – I'll say that for our purposes, you know, I've followed you and Jesse's reporting on the show around all this, and maybe the insight that I would give is uh, that you're you're right when you suspect the role of things like Slack. Even though 2020 was an incredible year for reporting so many important stories – There was this weird change that happened, largely because we were all working remotely, where Slack, this internal messaging system that we had set up, which could be so helpful at times, was increasingly kind of becoming like Twitter itself, where you had to be very careful what views that you shared on Slack, even jokes that you might make on Slack. Uh, You had to be more and more vigilant I guess, vigilant, depending on what views you might be sharing. For example, when James Bennett was under fire for publishing the Tom Cotton op-ed, me and some of my colleagues, uh, we very much wanted to defend James Bennett, but we were encouraged kind of quickly by our managers and people around us, like, hey, you know, just don't write anything on Slack. You know, don't, don't say anything on Slack. There was just this sense that had been growing that a handful of people who were really motivated could mess with your career, or it could change your public reputation if they thought that you disagreed with them on some of these hot-button issues.
0: Okay, so the summer goes by. The racial reckoning continues. More scalps are claimed all over the media for various offenses, some real, some imagined. And then it comes for you, starting with Caliphate, this popular award-winning show, Your Baby, what happened?
1: Uh, in the fall of 2020, the Canadian authorities arrested the former ISIS fighter, quote unquote, now, that we had featured in our podcast. And they had charged him with committing a terrorism hoax. This is a charge that's usually used when somebody fakes a bomb threat at like a sports arena and they're just trying to incite A riot or incite fear. It had never been charged towards somebody in a situation like this on a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, well, he wasn't charged for coming on the podcast as much as he was charged (laughs) for like scaring Canadians. Lying on a podcast (laughs) is
0: actually a Canadian offense. Yeah, I don't
1: think he was arrested in connection to the podcast, but I don't think that the podcast helped him uh, at all in that regard. But um, as you can imagine the Caliphate team and the New York Times leadership quickly started meeting regularly to determine what we should do in response to this allegation. And my instinct, and the instinct of some of the people on my team, was, hey, we had said in the podcast that we weren't sure which aspects of this guy's story were and weren't true. If there's more information coming out now that claims that he made were untrue, let's start recording. Let's report what we do next and put it out as, you know, Caliphate season two or something. I don't know, like this, let's keep showing our work. And I remember in that first meeting that we had, I said like, guys, we should be recording this call right now. Is it okay if I record this call right now? And uh, the overwhelming response from the leadership was no, absolutely not. And I kept saying, well, don't you think that the listeners would find it interesting to have a front row seat and how we respond to this and how we try and find the truth of the claims that were made. And uh, I'll never forget I was told, Andy, our job right now is not to do anything Mm. interesting.
0: You would be terrible at PR, Andy.
1: (laughs) Maybe. Maybe so. Um, So uh, quickly, two things happened. First, uh, the New York Times got a couple of their investigative reporters to do an investigation into – did this guy join ISIS or not, right? Had we been duped? And then another investigation, and in some ways an even more serious investigation, was done by an outside group into Rukmini and I's reporting in Caliphate, essentially to say, had there been any misbehavior? Had we crossed any ethical lines? Did we ever knowingly publish something that was untrue? And I think the idea there was to ensure that this was not some kind of Jason Blair situation.
0: And explain who Jason Blair is.
1: Uh, You know, in short, Jason Blair was a fake journalist. This was a guy who whole cloth created fake characters, fake quotes, fake stories at the New York Times, and he rose pretty quickly within the ranks of the Times before he was caught. And when he was caught and exposed, it was a huge blow to the Times. And in some ways, I don't think that they've ever quite gotten over it understandably
0: okay so there's two investigations what did they find
1: so the first investigation into the claims that this guy made essentially revealed that there were more things he said to us that were probably untrue and that we now have much more doubt around whether this guy ever joined Isis or whether he was just a guy catfishing from his basement uh, and then the second investigation which involved many conversations with Rukmini and I, with lawyers, with investigators, us turning over emails, WhatsApps, texts, audio files. That investigation ultimately revealed that we had not behaved nefariously, that we had broken no ethical rules. And in fact, in in the case of the audio team, Dean Baquet, who was the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, he had a special meeting with us to say that he thought that we had engaged in the very kind of journalism that the Times admires. And he said to me personally, um, you know, I won't let you blame yourself for this, which meant a lot.
0: I mean, I agree with you. This would have made a fantastic second season of Caliphate, uh, but you did not get that opportunity. What happened instead?
1: Yeah. So instead of us uh, doing several episodes about how the Times tries to make decisions like this, um, instead what they decided to do was to put out a statement on I think it was the last Friday of the year 2020, could have been the second to last Friday of the year, saying that we were retracting aspects of the story and that we could no longer stand by some of the claims that uh, our source had made and that Brookmini Kalamaki was going to be reassigned to a different beat. And uh, when we put the statement out on a Friday, journalism Twitter just really blew up. Uh, there was a lot of like, ha you know, the New Yorker made them the number one podcast of the year, but I knew that it was BS the whole time. Oh, Rukmini spends more time on TV talking about her stories, and she does reporting them, like it's just kind of stuff like that. But then the, the, the kind of Twitter dogpile got especially big because uh, right-wing outlets and uh, accounts like Ben Shapiro's jumped on this too, right? Because this was 2020. This was at a time when there were worrying stories about the misinformation of right-wing podcasters like Joe Rogan, right? Um, which I've always been confused about the idea of Joe Rogan being a right-wing podcaster. But a lot of people were saying, ha-ha, the real misinformation was coming from the New York Times the whole time.
0: So in the midst of all of this drama, all of this shit happening on Twitter, you guys decide to give back your Peabody Award. Who Whose
1: decision was that? That was an internal decision that we made. Um, the thinking was, let's be classy here and hand the Peabody back before anybody says that we should hand it back. But it was just a part of the strategy that you know Dean Bacay, I think, summed up well when he had this meeting with the whole audio team right before we made this announcement that Friday where essentially he said, look, this is going to be a tough weekend. Uh, we've all got to do our best to be there for the Caliphate team. They're going to get a lot of criticism. But uh, everything that we're doing is to minimize how long the stories in the headlines. We're going to keep this to be a one-day story, maybe a two-day story, and then we can all get back to work.
0: Yeah, for I mean for people who haven't listened to the series, the veracity of this guy's story is a big part of a the theme of the theme throughout the throughout the series, but you were still duped. I mean, I can imagine as I, you know, I've been duped as a reporter on a much much smaller scale, and it is a it's a humiliating experience. It's also a like a real kick in the ass in terms of uh, making sure this never, ever fucking happens again. So I'm wondering, do you think you should have been more skeptical? Has this informed your reporting going forward? Like how was that, that aspect of it for you?
1: I mean, it's definitely something I've thought about a lot. Just imagining the hours and the hours that I spent you know, researching and editing and producing this story with this guy's voice, the amount of empathy I had for him as he described himself being in pain and his, you know, struggle to know what's right and what's wrong, the amount of investment of time, even just me, that I gave to this guy and his story to think that all of that was to a fabulous is very very upsetting just on just on like an emotional level like i wrote music scoring this thing he said and now i'm like was that a lie you know like that's 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 just that's and then i think yeah the soul searching on the other end which is not just like okay how did i get duped maybe um but god the new york times firing on all cylinders like the star reporter on this beat the firepower of the times and just like the idea that that we and of course like members of the American military as well, right? It wasn't just us. Like that, so many people who are so invested in this beat that we might have been duped is. Um, I think that that's definitely something that begins to shape you. And as much as I've, I've always been skeptical, uh, my skepticism has definitely been raised a hundredfold. And I'll just say, uh, you know, to pull it from the personal just into a broader perspective, like there are so many stories to tell about ISIS, and it was a really impactful thing that happened, not just to the Middle East in the places where, you know, the Islamic State was, but to all of the countries with all of these attacks. I think we forget now just how incredibly invasive the violence was and the fear that was generated out of it, right? And to think that, like, of all the stories we could have told, we might have devoted all this time to telling one that wasn't true, that's devastating, on the other hand, you know, I, 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 I still don't know. Like to this day, like there, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he did. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's weird. It's a weird, it's a weird place to be uncertain. But that uncertainty is, I think, where, uh, where I have to live.
0: Okay, so you're ready to go forward, but things change really quickly. Walk me through what happened next.
1: So, the Monday morning following this, you know, rough Friday where we released the statement about caliphate. The following Monday morning, bright and early, we released a special episode of The Daily that my colleague Bianca Gaver and I had been working on for weeks. This was a profile of the FM radio DJ Delilah, and it was the beginning of a week of special episodes leading up to Christmas. This is essentially like how we in the daily news business sometimes make a Christmas break for ourselves, right? We make a bunch of special episodes so that we're not doing our usual thing. And this episode comes out, and it is so well-received. I'm telling you, to this day, I don't know if there's a single story that I've done that's gotten more positive feedback, gotten more emails in my inbox from old friends who say, oh, I love this, or from strangers just reaching out to say how much it moved them. And it was especially loved on Twitter, And tweets started to come out where people not just said complimentary things about it, but they said things like, wow, best story of the year, best podcast episode of the year. You know, this should win all the awards.
0: You can get the Peabody that you just gave back. They're going to give it back to you.
1: Well, I don't think that the journalism Twitter world (laughs) liked seeing that this guy, and I should note that I'm usually behind the scenes. I'm rarely on the microphone myself these days. And I definitely was rarely on the microphone at the Daily, maybe one or two stories a year. But this was a story where me and Bianca together narrated the story, right? My voice was actually present in my work in a way that it usually isn't. And it didn't take long for people on Twitter to start asking why this was allowed to happen. I think when things really started to change in their mood was on Monday night when the very ex-coworker who eight, nine years before I had dumped a drink on her head at this bar. Remember that from the unfortunate story I told? So that ex-coworker went on Twitter and wrote this. Uh, She said, "'Harass coworkers for years, no problem.'" The New York Times will give you a job and defend you when New York Magazine writes about it. Forced to return your Peabody for bad reporting, no sweat. You get to host The New York Times the Daily the very next Monday. Kudos, Andy Mills. Hashtag caliphate. And really, you can draw a direct line from that tweet to a pretty massive storm inside of kind of podcast journalism, Twitter, Uh, people saying things like, wait, do I have this straight? You know, Rukmini has to take the fall for caliphate. But meanwhile, her producer, who also was a prominent voice on this podcast, he gets to host the next episode of The Daily? Like, what is this about? Things just started to escalate from there, right? There were accusations that this was about male privilege and the difference in how men are treated from women in journalism. Uh, race came in pretty quickly saying that you know this is how it is to be a privileged white male. They always get the special treatment. People started to make other accusations against me. Uh, they went through my old tweets, saw that I had said a nice thing about Ion Hersi Ali at one point, and they used that as grounds to say that I was an Islamophobe. They found that I had liked a tweet from reporter Katie Herzog, and they used that as a uh, as proof that I was a transphobe. Yes, that, yeah. that's what they said. Um, thanks a lot for that, Katie. You're welcome. It was a funny tweet. I hope
0: record. so. I hope it was worth it.
1: It was. It was just a tweet about public radio as well to do <laughs> with, with trans issues. It was just because of your reputation. Uh, and then, you know, pretty quickly people started going after my friends. Uh, there was a hashtag that was started called hashtag speak up white guys or speak up white guys in podcasting or something like that, where they're saying like, this guy's been popular for years. There's a, bunch. there's a bunch of guys on here who aren't saying anything. And uh, by the next day I woke up to a public relations call from the New York times. And honestly, she was great. Uh, she, you know, told me right away to not look at this stuff, uh, that it wasn't good for my mental health, and that they were on top of it, they were monitoring the situation. But she also told me right away that like they didn't exactly have a playbook for how best to respond in situations like this. You know, she said that whether it was some of Donald Trump's more ardent supporters going after Maggie Haberman on the politics desk for coverage that they felt was unfair or in cases like this one, that this was uncharted territory for them and that they didn't exactly know step-by-step what to do, but that they were on it, right? And so considering this was Christmas break, I was off anyway. The decision had just been made like, We're going to monitor this stuff on Twitter. You stay off of it. We'll check in every day. We'll let some time pass. And it's likely that this will just go away in a few days.
0: So oftentimes in situations like this, there's a a seed of truth in the initial allegations perhaps, but then things pretty quickly start to mutate and the the game of telephone. Right. Uh, Did that happen with you?
1: Yes. Um, You know, there were tweets about me dumping the drink. There were tweets about me um, being accused of rubbing shoulders uh, at work. And then quickly, it was elevated to tweets about me being a criminal, uh, both that I was abusive to women and that I was a sexual predator. I do want to say, you know, no one ever came forward and claimed that they were a victim of my abuse or sexual predation. It was just a kind of strange game of Twitter telephone where accusations just seem to get bigger and bigger and more and more dramatic. So that was one thing that happened. And the other thing that happened is that a lot of these people on Twitter started to go after the host of The Daily, Michael Barbaro. They were tweeting things like, here's an example of one. Can someone please explain to me what's going on at the New York Times with the sexual assault allegations against Andy Mills and why Michael Barbaro is being completely silent about this? Then my friend Barbaro, he started to block people on Twitter who were making these kinds of accusations against me, and you can probably guess how that went.
0: Yeah, not well.
1: Not well. Uh, Here's an example of uh, a tweet uh, as they started to flood more and more in. If Michael Barbaro continues to block everyone who mentions Andy Mills, the next thing to do is to continue to associate the New York Times brand with sexual assault until somebody in charge of the money is forced to give a shit about this.
0: And again, you had never been actually
1: accused of sexual assault. God, no. No.
0: And this this was – by the way, this tweet was written by a journalist.
1: Yes. I think a especially discouraging aspect of this, especially as I'm being accused of having um, not had enough credulity in believing the ISIS fighter was that the very same people who were criticizing me as some kind of gullible journalist were, you know, unironically just absolutely believing things that they were reading on Twitter. And this kind of became the the day-in, day-out norm for the next uh, several days. Every time that the Daily or the New York Times or Barbaro tweeted something, underneath it there would be response tweets that say, I'm not listening to you guys until you stop working with Andy Mills. We have to stop enabling predators. Predators.
0: You're like you're, It makes it sound like you're a T-Rex.
1: I almost wish that they thought of me like a T-Rex, but I think – I think they were thinking of something even far less flattering. But this was just uh, the state of Twitter for several days as, you know, Christmas break ended and New Year's break ended. It just kept growing and growing and growing. But it was just on Twitter. And uh, I'm not sure how granular you want to get with the inside look at how something like this is responded to at a place like The Times. But um, one thing that might be worth noting, is that, you know, the PR person who called me every day to check in on me, she told me that the uh, members from some of the data analysis team at the Times had been looking and monitoring all this Twitter activity very closely, and that even though it looked like a lot of people and some of these tweets were getting, you know, five, six hundred likes, that according to their analysis, it appeared that it was only 19 accounts that were actually tweeting about it wow. and trying to kind of stir up a larger movement and that at least um, some of those accounts seem to be multiple accounts uh, by by the same person. And so they really had what they thought was firm evidence that this thing would pass soon. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, we talked about like what kind of statement to make. Um, you know, what, it's so hard to know, like, how do you say like, Hey, some of that stuff is true about me doing stupid things, but not this other stuff, you know, like it was just like a very confusing place to be in.
0: Okay. So at this point, the times has your back, but as the weeks go by, the story does jump from Twitter to the rest of the world. So how did that happen?
1: Yeah. And this is honestly one of the saddest parts of the story. Um, a lot of people on Twitter had gone after uh, my friends or after different colleagues of mine at the times, but then they also started to go after Radiolab as a show and to individuals who worked there, and um, saying that they had enabled my predation, that they had you know given me a platform that led to my success, and eventually Radiolab decided that they needed to release a public statement. And so they put out this this note and in it they you know were very sure to not accuse me of anything I didn't do it's not it's nothing like that but they essentially said you know we should have done more to punish Andy thank you for uh, holding us accountable we hear you um, and pretty soon after that letter hit the internet I almost immediately got a call from the Washington Post and then from NPR and then from CNN and more and more outlets in the mainstream started covering it. And, um, you know, the the PR person who I spoke to every day, I mean, I also was speaking to like my managers and editors and friends at the Times as well, but the PR person is really who uh, had taken control in this situation, uh, you know, she cautioned me that, you know, the best statement is no statement at this time. The thinking is just that if the New York Times says something... Like, we have the biggest audience, right? And if we say something, the story just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the best thing to do is just to let it naturally go, kind of the way that the, you know, New York magazine eventually went away.
0: Right. I hate to bring you back here, but but I want to pause on that letter for a moment. So was the letter signed by individuals?
1: Yes, um, it was. Uh, many of them... Very dear friends, many of them colleagues that I worked tireless hours deep into the night with uh, throughout my twenties, uh, and it was a very uh, sad and 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 strange thing to see them do that. But I also think I understood it uh, to a certain degree. Uh, I mean, the senior editor who I think really um, spearheaded the the letter project, he actually called me that night to tell me like, we don't dislike you. I don't dislike you. I know a lot of the stuff that people are saying on the internet about you isn't true, but we just have to do what we think is right to protect the jobs that we have here. And, you know, he said like 19 people work here now. Like that's 19 salaries. That's, that's 19 people's livelihoods. And, you know,
0: and they, and he really thought that this was going to somehow be the end of the fucking of radio lab. <laughs> if they didn't say anything about yeah. it. I mean, I I can understand. I understand. Like, it it feels huge in the moment, especially when you're in the media and all of these people on Twitter won't shut the fuck up about it.
1: Right. And I also think that, like, I'm sure there were internal pressures. Uh, I'm sure people at Radiolab or at WNYC, you know, maybe who came in after I was there, who didn't know me, like, you know, wanted to, them to do something. But I also think, that like, uh, you've got to remember that before Elon Musk broke Twitter— I just cannot explain it to people who weren't there how much Twitter really controlled different aspects of the media in New York City. Like, there are things you won't do because you'd get punished by Twitter, and there's things you will only do because you're rewarded by Twitter. it's, It's hard to overstate the role between kind of 2014 and whenever Elon Musk broke it like the role that twitter played in the world of journalism is like a book i would love to read you know like it's 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 just impossible to overstate and it's and a part of that is because it's like human beings are so social and we hate to be rejected. We we it's it yes, part of it is your jobs on the line, but another part of it is your reputation, your integrity.
0: Yeah, and this was happening across the media at various different outlets. There'd been a number of high profile cancellations in the pub and the podcast world. So I guess, you know, from even a couple years out, it's easy to look at what your former colleagues and friends did and say, What the fuck were you thinking? This was totally unnecessary. But I'm sure yeah. at the time it felt necessary.
1: <sighs> I have empathy for the pain and the confusion that they were in, even as I will always uh, disagree with the wisdom of them putting out that letter. And it wasn't the last letter. Uh, after the Radio Lab letter came out, then there were the calls from the Washington Post and other n- news outlets. And then a few days later, there was an open letter from public radio station producers around the country who were saying that They wanted to boycott or drop The Daily from public radio stations that aired it if Barbaro and I were not punished in some way. And at that point, uh, we realized, like, we really had to do something. We couldn't ignore this any longer. But it was hard to know, like, what to say. Like, trying to craft this statement where we are being honest about my shortcomings, where I can have the opportunity to show, you know, public remorse— but also to say, like, hey, I- I'm actually not a criminal. You know, I'm not actually this person that's being painted on Twitter. Like, trying to write that up is, is, is incredibly difficult. And f- <laughs> the, the words are definitely failing you as you're in this, like, very emotionally fraught situation of having your entire reputation changed, uh, you know, somewhat overnight. Um, and as all that's kind of happening in my world and the PR world, This is around the time that there starts to be some complaints about both me and Barbaro, to a certain extent, coming from some people at The New York Times. Uh, They ranged from some people who just said, like, hey, look, this is incredibly bad PR. The Daily has become this hugely important and very profitable part of our newsroom. Like, we've got to clean this up. Uh, And then other people saying, like, I don't think that I could work with a guy like Andy as a leader in the newsroom if you know, there's all this smoke around him. And it was in the midst of like trying to come up with this statement and trying to understand how to handle these complaints internally that the Daily Beast published a story about Donald McNeil. Do you remember the story of Donald McNeil?
0: Oh, yeah. We've talked about this one quite a bit on the show. So for people who don't remember, he was a a veteran NYT reporter, COVID reporter, and he was pushed out – uh, after an allegedly racist incident.
1: Yes, um, just as a you know, little more information for people who don't know, um, the accusation about him was that he had said the N word uh, on a trip with some high school students. But uh, after an investigation was done, they realized that you know he, the sixty-seven-year-old reporter you know, was using the N-word in reference to a question that he'd been asked. Like, he wasn't using it. He didn't um, call somebody the N-word. Exactly. And so after an investigation was done, the Times, I think they gave him some kind of punishment, told him never to use the word again, even if he's making a reference. And then he was fine. You know, he continued to stay at his job. But after this Daily Beast article comes out, it just starts this media storm, right? Donald McNeil is very famous much more famous than I am, and a lot of conservatives don't like him because of what he'd been saying about COVID, and so they were kind of having a heyday calling him a racist. CNN and some other uh, outlets that really love media drama, they were having a heyday about it. And, you know, a part of the story that was coming out, as far as I'm concerned, was like, look, another white male who wins all these awards and has this prominent position is allowed to do whatever he wants at the times and they'll just stand by him. And so the story as far as it intersects with my own that emerged was like, look at how the New York times treats these two white guys, right? They, uh, win all the awards, they get all the glory. And no matter how much they misbehave, the times just keeps standing by them. Right. And ultimately. This uh, led to, you know, some people in the newsroom, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones kind of famously leading a group of people saying that Donald McNeil needed to apologize and be further punished, that, you know, there should be more scrutiny on all of us. And, you know, I'll save you guys uh, some of the gory details with the lawyers and the back and forth. But eventually what happened is that Donald and I each received a phone call from the editor-in-chief, Dean Paquette, And he said, essentially, that we had lost the newsroom, that we had uh, lost his confidence in our abilities to be leaders at The New York Times. And I know in my situation, when he called to tell me this, he said that he could understand why I might want to make a career change and that if I chose to leave The Times – they were prepared to make that transition as comfortable as possible for me
0: so they're buying you off
1: yes which essentially means they would pay me money uh if i would step down um if you would go away quietly yeah. because remember like they 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 cannot fire me and there was never any mention of firing me i i you know i was a union employee as was donald i had never you know done anything uh, fireable uh, so it, it was it, it was a tough situation but essentially what kind of math they did and you could see them doing it in real time was like however much value I brought to the times, which, you know, they were always very good to me, very clear to me that I had a lot of value, right? That they they felt that it wasn't just the awards or it wasn't just the success of the daily, but it was my training of staff and my new ideas each season and all this kind of stuff, right? They, they always made me feel very valuable, but I think that they did see a limit to that value and they made the shrewd decision that if I were to resign, this would go away for them. And the truth is they told me, you know, we think that if you resign, it'll also go away for you. This whole public shaming will will be over if you do this. And so that's what I did. Um, February the 3rd, I believe, uh, I put out my resignation letter, as did Donald. Uh, There was a round of news stories you know the usual suspects CNN Washington Post all that but then uh, they were proved right within you know 24 48 hours it was over you know the, uh, there were no more tweets there were no more stories um, and really up until this moment that I'm talking to you this is this has been somewhat, dead and dormant
0: so did you and donald go get drunk that night together <laughs>
1: <laughs> i wish i wish uh we definitely had some phone calls yeah. together i mean um I, he he was in a very different stage of life i mean we have a lot in common I, you know he and i both have the kind of what they call a working class background he worked his way up from the mail room he had been there for 40 years or more and i you know have my own uh, background, so you know we bonded on those things, and you know, kind of commiserated that this was a tough situation. But I think we we also chose just different paths and how to go forward. He, I think, wrote uh, the longest medium article in the history of the website, uh, kind of going through all of his stuff, and I chose instead of diving big into my own story, I kind of chose to channel. A lot of my curiosity about this experience and why human beings engage in this and what it's like emotionally, I kind of chose to channel all that into uh, working on a series that I made called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, which is not at all on the surface about any of this stuff, but it w- was in some ways me using my curiosity and need for some kind of artistic therapy um, to, you know, lead with curiosity instead of with outrage in uh, a very upsetting situation.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I've seen a lot of people who've been through similar public shaming campaigns essentially turn into the the worst, most curdled versions of themselves afterwards. They basically become the people their critics claim they were all along. Mm -hmm. How did you avoid that? Uh, going to hang out with J.K. <laughs> <laughs> rolling in a castle in Scotland. Uh,
1: well, that doesn't uh, it doesn't hurt, um, but that was you know over a year later. So if I if I were to kind of like go through with now having hindsight, you know what kept me from succumbing to that temptation because it was a very real temptation to to sink into self pity and outrage and indignation. I had. The first thing that was helpful is that I had reported about, quote-unquote, cancel culture for years at this point. I actually produced a couple episodes of The Daily about, like, the history and the motivations behind something like cancel culture. I've known people who've been in situations like this before. I was curious already Mm -hmm. about this behavior. So I had kind of the ability to intellectualize it and go, huh. Yes, it's painful, but this is also very interesting, right? I could do that a little (laughs) bit, Uh, which is also like maybe a protective layer that uh, me and many journalists have. Like, oh, I'm feeling sad because someone I love has died. I'm going to do a story about grief and mourning.
0: (laughs) Turn this into context. What is grief?
1: Yeah. Exactly. Uh, um, I think the other thing is that I am no longer religious. I left the kind of supernatural aspects of the faith, but I very much stayed in touch with parts of being religious that I think are good. And mainly that is being in touch with your values. What are the values? What are the names of the values that are guiding your life, right? My friends and I talk a lot about it. You know, we we talk about grace, courage, honesty, gratitude, having a sense of humor, right? And we talk so much about it that whenever you go through a really Unstabilizing, painful, confusing time, you don't have to, in the midst of all those swirls of emotions, go, how do I make decisions? And wh- 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 what do I do? It's, it's, you can say, okay, what is the gracious response? What is the honest response? What does courage look like in a situation like this? How do I stay grateful? Because, like, none of those things will lead you to go, I'm going to go on a crazy tweet screed about how I was, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) not that I lived up to all those values perfectly, but at least I had them as my ideals, as something to strive for. And I think that was huge.
0: Andy, I can see that you would make a really good youth pastor.
1: (laughs) There was a time where (laughs) such a calling was right there in front of me. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, Overly (laughs) earnest. Sorry, I really got on my pulpit there. But, I mean, this is, the truth is that, like, I got these values, these names, like, tattooed on my body after I had this experience because of just how grateful I was to have had something steady to hold on to like this when the storm came. And as cheesy as it sounds, and I know it does, um, it really, really helped. And I think the other thing that helped, of course, is that I, and I know that I'm very lucky for this, but I have a community. I have friends. Yeah. Yeah close friends, intimate friends, friends who are there in the good times to toast your beer and celebrate that award, but also there in the worst times to mourn with you. And, um, and those friendships throughout those years that like having people who I've been vulnerable around and have been vulnerable around me, right. Having them to help me not kill myself, not, you know, completely give up in the face of people calling me awful and the, face of these death threats that I started to get and the face of a real death. Social death, yeah. Like, it was the death of my career. It was the death of my reputation. It was the death of my hopes uh, at the New York Times. And it was was also, you know, a version of, an extreme version of what I had gone through in, in 2014 with that HR situation where I told you that, like, it was just so embarrassing to go, wow, you don't see yourself the way other people see you. And at that time it felt almost like, well, what a wake up call. You know, like this is painful, but like, this is good. Cause now that you see how you're coming off, you can change. But what was different about this one was like, wait, am I a criminal? Like, do I actually deserve to die? Right? Like, and I can't imagine what it would be like to try and navigate that alone without your friends there. Yeah,
0: uh, I can tell you about that if you want.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that I'd love to talk to you, you know, about your own experience with this. I mean—
0: We'll do that on another show.
1: Yeah, yeah. but also, like, when you asked me to come on and and tell this story, right, I was reluctant. I didn't want to (laughs) for a number of reasons. Um, But when I decided, okay, I'm going to do it, you know, one of the ideas behind that was, like, let's talk about the bigger— implications. Let's try and, like, analyze this in, like, a much bigger way. And I'd and i I'd like to share my thoughts, but I'd also like to hear your thoughts on it. You know, like, what is at the heart of these social dynamics and, and, and how they end up playing out in situations like this?
0: Well, I think it's, what it comes down to is that, as you said earlier, we're social animals and we're a mimetic species. And I think after almost four years of of doing this show this is sort of the through line is this deep recognition both from the stories that we've done and from my own experience that most people are fundamentally you know if I wanted to be cynical about it I would say followers but I don't really want to be cynical about it most people just want to be liked I think that's what it, what it really comes down to. And there's this immense fear of being cast out of society. I mean, maybe there's – cast out of the garden, maybe. Maybe there's something biblical about it.
1: Um, mm, thanks for weaving that in for me. Yeah.
0: but That's <laughs> been sort of my experience um, hmm. going through this on a much, much smaller scale than you.
1: Well, I just think like I, I would I would add to that maybe these two at times opposing dynamics that I've tried to always wrestle with. Like on the one hand – some of the people who engaged in the public shaming that I was the target of, right? They were clearly having fun. Oh, yeah. With this. Oh, for sure. They knew that they were exaggerating cringy, stupid things I had done or said. And wielding them into something far more nefarious, right? But they would take things even further. I mean, they made memes with like me and Michael Barbaro's face on them, you know, saying things like, find someone who loves you as much as Michael Barbaro loves sexual predator producer Andy. You know, like they made fake accounts with my name to post dumb things. They, you know, were clearly getting some sort of social enjoyment out of it. And and when I see that, I'm just like, God, that's so perplexing. But on the other hand, I do think that – and maybe this is my Christianity coming back. Like, I do think that there's a lot of people who see that the world is full of injustice, who see that there's so much unfairness out there, who maybe they themselves have been victimized by some douchey dude one too many times, right? And they wish that there was something that they could do to make it better. They want to be empowered to change the world even a little bit and they don't have an outlet to do it. And so what do they do? Well, they, they join the dog pile on Twitter because to them, they see me as the embodiment of a real social problem that has been persistent for years. And they think maybe we can be a part of the movement that stops this. And if it, and if, if it takes getting rid of this guy and stripping him of his job and that's what we're going to do, right? Like, and, it, and and what's ironic about it is that, like, I actually admire that quality in them. I think that that's the best of us as people, that we want to leave the world better than we found it, that we want to have a just legacy that we leave. And then it just gets caught up in these other social dynamics and in the, the need for social media to keep us coming back day in and day out for more drama or more content.
0: I think your analysis is exactly correct. I also think you're more generous than I am. These people are fucking assholes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, have you? Let me ask you this: Have you ever, um, have you ever tried to cancel somebody?
0: You know, that's sort of a complicated question to answer because, like, I've never done a call-out post or anything like that. I don't think, um, but I have certainly criticized people and in ways that have inadvertently started pile-ons. And the one that grew the biggest was after the story I wrote for Barry Weiss in the Free Press. It was a story about a therapist who was – she was racist. She was extremely anti-white.
1: I remember this. Yeah. It was a
0: crazy story. Uh, she basically was using her practice to what she thought was like healing people. But she, she had just a like pretty crazy message. Like she told me on the phone at one point that white people don't eat bread because they have some sort of latent guilt over slavery. And this became a huge—she was also—she had done uh, done a talk for Yale ground, Grand Rounds, and, and this became a huge story because she repeated some of this absolute nonsense in this talk at Yale, and we got the audio of her talk. It was, what she said was very inflammatory, and, of course, the story became huge. It was picked up by Fox News and the Daily Mail. It was all over Twitter. And I I almost immediately regretted writing the piece because I saw this woman who was in the wrong—I still believe she was in the wrong— she was being absolutely destroyed by people who weren't just having fun. They felt so righteous about it. But yeah, so as much as we've been critical of of cancel culture on this show, and it is a recurring theme, uh, I, have, I have been a part of it for sure.
1: Yeah, and you didn't mean to. And even though you didn't mean to, you inadvertently led to it. So I think that that says a lot about – how it is bigger than any one individual or one individual story. The closest I've been to a cancellation was my own, and I got to see a little bit of it through both sides um, because not only was I on the receiving end of the public shaming, but um, and I don't think I've ever told anyone else this. So uh, it's just us. <laughs> not sure. Not sure it's the wisest thing for me to put on your podcast, but um, you know, I was living with two of the guys who were still on staff at Radiolab, when they made the decision to put their name on that letter that went out, which, again, I want to emphasize, like that letter wasn't claiming I was some criminal. It wasn't, you know, aping the worst things being said about me on Twitter. But it was essentially saying thank you for Twitter, for calling them out. You know, it it was a disavowal. It was a disavowal and a public distancing of themselves from me, even as we were sharing our meals, living together, having a honestly having a fantastic time up to that point. Um how,
0: how did you continue to live with them after they signed an open letter condemning you?
1: Well, it was a rough day. <laughs> it was a really <laughs> rough day. And um
0: Who changed the locks? You were them. Exactly.
1: Uh, it required us to have real serious conversations and to embrace real serious attempts at empathy. And I understood, even as I disagreed with it, I understood they were nervous about maybe things that they had done in their past coming out. They were nervous about maybe losing their jobs. They were nervous about losing their standings. I mean, one of them said, you know, what good would it do for me to to have not signed it? They were going to do it, you know, like I think about the... Implications for the rest of my career by me not signing it. And I just saw that it's going to happen anyway. What, you know, I'm nobody. Like I, me signing it publicly while privately standing up for you. Like I, I could see that they were in pain all their own. I could see that they didn't know what to do. And I know that hearing this as an outsider, you're like, God, what, what kind of lives are these people living? We're like, this is a hard call. I would make the easy call. It's not easy.
0: Yeah. All right, Andy, one more question for you. Do you think if this happens now in twenty twenty four do you think this would play out the same way?
1: One hundred percent no. <laughs> I think that so much has changed in the past few years. Um number one is the one I referenced a little bit earlier, but like Twitter is no longer the powerful vehicle for closely policing speech and for ginning up a very quick and emotional call out into a cancel. like it's just. It's completely changed. Yeah, I don't know if it's a good website. Uh, I left Twitter the day I resigned, and I've not looked at it once since. And my life has only gotten better. <laughs> There's no nothing I feel I'm missing out on. Uh, that's that's definitely been a dynamic. Uh, I think you've seen that the Times has tried to course correct uh, in the way that they've stood up for their reporters who've covered stories about medical transition for minors, right? The Glad led this big protest. There were open letters uh, against some of the Times journalists, and Joe Kahn and the Times leadership, they stood up for the reporters, and they in fact actually did more than that. They said, like, if you write one of these open letters calling out our reporters again, you'll never work here, right? Like, they, they took yeah. it very firmly. Uh, anecdotally, I hear from colleagues at the Times who tell me that you know, gosh, Andy, you know, if this thing had happened now, that wouldn't happen. I mean, some of them are delusional enough to think that I could get my job back, uh, which is, which is <laughs> sweet of them uh, because I still like, to them. <laughs> and let me just say this, you know, I, I, I get asked a lot because now that I've, you know, been ugh, canceled, I hate that word, but I guess that's it. I do, uh, I do now run in a crew that includes the canceled, right? We, we all start to eventually know each other and it can be really, that's the
0: upside. Yeah.
1: It can be really good. There's like a, a sad club that none of us (laughs) meant to join. And, um, it can be nice to be there for each other, you know, and, and, and share these experiences. And, you know, I, I, maybe this goes without saying, but like many people who go through this attempt to kill themselves. I have a very, very close friend who ended up in a psychiatric ward. Um, like and so it's good to be able to meet with other people to make jokes about it and to kind of gain some perspective about it right but i do think that being a part of this crew there are, there is a, a little bit of like oh the new york times has lost its way you know oh you know what kind of media can we trust and i do want to remind people that some of the reporters at the new york times are absolutely the best reporters in the business hands down like the new york times has so many brilliant editors dogged reporters and also just great fucking people. Like I love so many of those people and I cherish my relationships with so many of them still to this day, right? But they are dealing with this and it's still alive and well. Like it is it is still an aspect that it's 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 the Times is still and will continue to be dealing with some of these dynamics that were front and center in 2020. They're not completely gone, and they're going to be dealing with them for years to come. And I just think that I'm on the team that is rooting for them to win in the end, for for the times and the reporters and the values that they're trying to live out in their work. Right, I have faith that they're going to be the stronger force in the end, and they're going to, to win out. I, and I might be wrong, but <laughs> I'm going to keep believing it all the way up until I'm wrong.
0: All right, Andy. Well, thank you so much for for coming here and and being willing to tell your story. I know it wasn't easy. Um, what are you working on now,
1: <sighs> Katie? Even just like I'm never gonna talk about this again. Just so you know, like <laughs> just the amount of sleep I've lost and thinking, yeah. oh, what am I doing? The amount yeah. of like shirts I've sweat through and uh, <laughs> temptations to get blackout drunk. I owe
0: you one. Yeah,
1: yeah. You owe me. One. You got it. Right, you can come on uh, my new podcast. Um, yeah. I will say, I, I, I'm currently piloting a brand new show. It's not out yet, so you can't subscribe to it. But it's a, it's a storytelling show. Uh, it's called Reflector. It's going to do some of the uh, things that I liked about This American Life and Radio Lab back in the day, right? It's a storytelling podcast where each episode is going to be a new story. Um, but really, like, what unites it is that no matter if the story is about, you know, Young Thug and the way that rap lyrics are being used in trials, in criminal cases, or whether it's a political story about how some congressional rule changes in the 1970s kind of started a chain reaction that have helped lead to all the struggles that we're having in Congress right now, right? Like, the thing that unites all these stories is that we my partner Matt Bull and I, who are making the show, like we are just very curious about human nature. And we're not interested in telling you what you should and shouldn't believe, but we're interested in looking at these stories deeply and seeing in them that, as cheesy as it sounds, like when you look hard at other human beings and the struggles that they're in, you often see a reflection of yourself there. Uh, And it's a a very fun and daunting project, and it should be out uh, in the next few months.
0: Well, I'm sure it will be awesome. I'm very much looking forward to hearing your work again. Andy Mills, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Katie.
0: And thank you, as always, to our producers, Tracing Woodgrains and Jessica, the 80s baby. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Katie Herzog, and we will be back next week with a new guest host.